Desideratum is a Latin word, meaning things that are desired as essential. The Desideratum podcast celebrates the art of telling and the journey of listening to stories with narrator Teresa Bakken and her author, artist, and wordsmith, Friends. Episode 15, Spellbound Under the Spanish Moss. Oh my goodness, I see Connor Garrett up there. Hey, Padre. How are Hi, you? Connor. Padre is Kevin Garrett in Atlanta, Georgia. And his son, Connor, just joined us from Beirut, Lebanon. The Zoom greeting you just heard might make you think they don't talk very often, but the opposite is true. They are a writing team, collaborating daily on a series of books. You're going to hear the beginning, chapter one of the first book. It's called Spellbound Under the Spanish Moss, a tale of Southern magic. I want you to also listen to the magic between this father and son. I have a hard time at this point kind of figuring out where where do I end and Connor begins and vice versa. You know, it's just, it was so seamless and smooth. And the same way that we began this call tonight on the video, just, you know, happy to see each other. Every day that we were working, we used WhatsApp and a shared Google Doc. And some days I would have something and be real concrete where we needed to go. And some days I would just get up and go, man, Connor's going to be really disappointed in me today. And that would be the very day. And it happened like this every time. I'm not kidding. Like every time Connor would go, don't worry about it, Padre. I got you. I've heard you talk a little bit about the collaboration and how you really, you were able to just connect electronically because you're living obviously in very different places. Um, yeah. Was there anything about it once you committed to doing it and you got started in the day-to-day? Like, was there anything, Connor, that was really surprising about it to you that you weren't expecting? Just the fact that in fiction, it's it's not very common for there to be collaboration on a long-form book. Um, nonfiction, you see it all the time, right? Like, it's a little bit easier if you're writing about, um, you know, if you're writing about well, like cryptocurrency, if you're writing about like healthcare or something that two people are both experts on the same subject matter, then they kind of more or less can plug and play and fill in the subject matter. Um, but with fiction, because it's so abstract and you're kind of, you can go in any different direction. I think it, it becomes a, le- a little bit less common. And so I think what surprised me was in the end, feeling, feeling, ownership in collaboration at the same time like it's very much collaborative but it's also still very much yours right which I think that was what was surprising I guess the duality um, of that I think you guys wrote with so much heart like I think it's um, each one of these characters to me is full of uh, life and lessons even though they're fanciful and it's very fable like Um, I wondered if you went in with an idea about the morality tales of it, you know, the portions of it that are, you know, bravery and love and these, these huge concepts, like, was that, was that purposeful for you? 
Yeah, it is. I think that um, if you're going to write, I think you still need to have your why. Like, just like, no, no matter what you're doing, right? If you're going to start a business, if you're going to write fiction, um, if you're going to go run a marathon, whatever it is, I think they all begin with the same sort of, um, or they should, I believe they, especially in this case, because it's a mental marathon, right? So if you're going to write a novel, um, you're going to need to have a why in order to get through it and for there to be some consistency. And so, you know, even, even a shorter book like this, it's not the longest book novella length, but, um, we had to have a why. And so there are certain things that we wanted to say. It's like, okay, well, what are you trying to say about, I mean, and, and really more or less, most books deal with the same themes more or less. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you look at death, you look at love, you look at like these, these quintessential human questions. And so it's like, well, what do we want to say about them? And why is what we're saying any different than what someone else is saying? And how has that helped us get through life? Right. And so that's kind of what we were trying to explore with a lot of these, with a lot of these things. And so what's Wally's perspective on it, right? What's Raven's perspective on it. And so then not only are we looking at through our own lens, but we're looking at through each individual character's lens, then, okay, well then what's the cumulative lesson there, you know? So sometimes, you know, something's good. It's a good truth, right? You hear it. And so this is what we try to do. We take moments. Here's the good truth that I'll say that we put in the book, things like this. It's, you, you, you don't protect kids from being afraid. You can't protect them from being afraid of them. You protect them from being hurt. You protect them from being damaged. You do your best with those things, but you can't protect kids from being afraid. That's, that's not, sometimes it's good to be afraid. Like it really is. Sometimes it's good to have to face some things, you know, otherwise, yeah, you, you will, sw- you will sink and it, and it won't be voluntary. Like right. it won't be because you just never learned the skill. So I mean, I think that's one of the things I love about the book. I think there's sort of, there's lessons that are about parenting that, and truths, like you're saying, the good truths that run through this story. So I think it's so beautiful that it was written by a parent and a child. I think it's more common for adult children to peel away and need to write their own stories and need to be their own people. And Mm. so I don't know, Kevin, you know, what did it mean to you that Connor wanted to collaborate in this way, that he wanted you to be part of this storytelling together. You know what? I, I feel like this book is the great gift in my life to have had the opportunity to collaborate with Connor on a story and to have had that connection. It's like, I've written, I, I've, I've written guidebooks on the Caribbean. I've written a lot of magazine articles, but forever, forever and ever, as long as I'm alive left that I've got, I've got this, I have this to hold. I, I have a book and, you know, I was raised in a household by my, my father, you know, treasure books. I, I always remember seeing my father read yeah. and um, you know, the fact that I've got one that I'm proud of. And the fact that, you know, I did it with Connor is just, you know, the crowning achievement. Yeah, you elevated each other in a way that the end result is something um, better than you could have created individually. There are just critical things when you have a great partner that you're able to get through certain parts and apply, right? You had brilliant ideas and it's like together. Yeah. Well, as you said, it's like, it's a book that I don't think either one of us would have written alone. 
you know, in the way that we did. It's like, we, I think we both could have written a decent book by ourselves, but decent isn't what you want to go for at all. That's not where you want to end up in life. You weren't great, you know? And, and the, just that, that was the thing that was like removing ego from it and being so excited about what you actually create, like really falling in love with your process and with your universe. That was the cool part. So that's a good place to stop and introduce you to their universe, their magical world that begins with a father and a son and a raven, a witch, and a bullfrog. Chapter 1 The wisest thing Gareth Grayfin's father Samuel did for his son was to throw him into the shallows of the sea and let the boy believe he was in the deep. Gareth thrashed and panicked until his feet touched the sandy bottom. The boy stood shivering, not with cold, but with sheer terror, with his head above the gently ebbing tide. Fear drowns more men than water, his father told him. You can feel it, but don't let it choke you. The father and son spent their days side by side, sailing Freya, a thirty-foot-long catch sailboat, up and down the Savannah and Ogeechee rivers, and along the coast to Tybee Island, and the other golden isles where they could anchor their vessel and fish. If Samuel and Gareth had a day of abundance and their nets were full, they would go into town with its cobblestone streets, fine mansions, Victorian buildings, and neat tree-lined squares, and sell the excess of their catch. Samuel spent most of the money on more fishing supplies, hooks, stronger line, upgrades for the two-mast boat. But any meager amount he had to spare, the father put away for his son. Gareth may have been the most fearful boy in the South. Spooked by his own reflection in the water, scared of his own shadow on the land. Being brave isn't being unafraid, said his father. Being brave is being terrified of something and doing it simply because it's the right thing to do. Have you ever been afraid? Of course, he said. When your mother died, I had to raise you, my perfect beautiful baby boy, all by myself. I had no idea how to be a father. I'll tell you a secret. Every adult was a kid once, and is just learning how to be a parent along the way. That's a scary thought, huh? Have you ever cried? Yes, he said. When your mother and I met, my eyes were the blue of a robin's egg. The son studied his father's pale gray irises. When she got the fever and passed, I cried every day until the tears washed the color from my eyes. But I feel her in the wind, and I see her in the stars, pushing us, guiding us, sending her light. Does she talk? She tells me how much she loves you, and how proud of you she is. Is she proud of me even when I'm afraid? Yes, always, even then. The boy had come to feel that his mother was in some way a part of their journey. 
The wind was her breath, her song, her whisperings. Although Gareth had no memory of his mother, his father's stories brought her to life for him. He could see her wavy red hair blowing in the breeze, her smile, her penchant for stopping to pick flowers and seashells from the ground, her walking barefoot by the sea. The lilac dress she wore when she slipped out of her house for a moonlit stroll with Samuel. The pearls his father collected from the oyster beds and fashioned into a necklace for her. The way her eyes lit up like sapphires when his father told her about the places they would sail someday. Every night on the shore under the stars and among the driftwood on the beach, Gareth would ask for another story about his mother. Sometimes the same story told again and again to the rhythm of the lapping water. His mother often visited him in his dreams. Other nights she would come as a light to dispel the phantoms of his night terrors. When Gareth was still a boy, Samuel would tell him about the wider world when his son couldn't sleep. The elder Grayfin was full of fantastical stories about the riddle-giving goat in the grove, the river nymphs, the treacherous blackwater swamp, the pirates who used to roam the coast in the Golden Isles and voyage to the Caribbean, the ghosts of the Confederate and Union soldiers trying to make their way home, the old money vampires who thrived in the upper echelons of Savannah, the African slaves who were forced to the region, the Indians who were forced out, and a girl with powers so great the townsfolk chased her into the woods for fear of her sorcery. The story about the girl especially fascinated the boy. He marveled at this girl's strength and wondered what it must be like to be so powerful at a young age when he was afraid of his own shadow. More nights than he could count, Gareth would finally drift off, listening to his father's deep, gravelly voice, and comforted by the soothing touch of his father tenderly stroking his hair. As Gareth got older, he came to believe that his father's tales had been embellished, if not fabricated entirely, as any sane and experienced individual would. What he couldn't have known was that all of Samuel Grafin's stories were true, except one. His father's silver hair has come to match his eyes, Gareth misses the days when he used to laugh. He imagines how life would be different for both of them if his mother were alive. Samuel is old, but not weak, slower, but more precise. In some ways, his father's mystique has diminished. In other ways, it has grown. Aren't you tired of me yet? he asks. Not yet, Gareth answers, rigging his line. A few waves slap Freya, christened in honor of Samuel's beloved late wife. The son casts his bait. In shallower waters, the father and the son would cast weighted nets, but here their lines disappear into the deep blue. Haven't you wanted to leave this place? his father asks. Of course, he says, without looking up. He feels that familiar knot coil up in his stomach. It's all we ever talked about. I haven't forgotten how you used to tell me we would sail around the world together, just like you used to tell my mother. 
The father hangs his head. He sighs heavily. Then suddenly, he shocks Gareth when he jerks his head up and says, You are right, son. We should go. We can leave in two days' time. Gareth throws the line in and releases his wooden H-shaped reel out again. It unspools like a kite pulled into the sky, loaded down with tiny lead weights. The youngster is tall, lean and sinewy from a life spent fishing, and tan from thousands of days out at sea under the sun. His misty blue eyes reflect the sea, and his wavy dark brown hair is streaked with copper. Both are reminders of Samuel's Freya, with her red curls framing her face like a halo and her laughing blue eyes, each and every time the elder Greyfin looks at his son. "'You can't have it both ways,' says Gareth, squaring to face his father. "'I used to want us to go somewhere. Anywhere, really. Just like the pirates. But I was a kid. Then when I got tired of waiting, I told you I'd go myself. And you said I couldn't, that I wouldn't make it. Now you talk of your fairy tales again.' I was afraid for you. You once told me that fear drowns more men than water. Well, I've seen what that looks like now. The line straightens out. Gareth feels the fish take the bait and sets the hook. The fish is powerful. He holds firm as it fights. Then he skillfully reels it in further as it rests. His father watches and remembers the time when his son was just a boy, struggling to reel in a three-pound bass. He remembers standing behind him on a number of occasions, helping him get an amberjack, cobia, sea bass, or grouper onto the boat. Now Gareth does fine on his own. His arms strain, but he lifts the large grouper on his taut line from the water. He unhooks the grouper and places the flopping fish in the large bucket that holds their catch. I love you, Pa. I always have and always will but I'm old enough to understand that all of your stories were just that, says Gareth. And all this time I used to think I was the biggest coward. But I realize now, you were afraid of everything. You told me I wouldn't make it on my own, because you never went anywhere yourself. That's how you feel? Gareth nods, going against the whispers of his own heart before diving into the water to escape the harshness of his own words. He swims deeper and deeper as his chest pounds so hard that it hurts. He goes where the light no longer reaches. When his lungs are on fire, he kicks to the surface. Gareth clambers aboard the boat, and the father and son sail back to the docks, with a heavy silence hanging between them. The other fishermen clean their boats and unload their haul. Gareth and his father pull their sailboat parallel to the shore. As the tide goes out, we can turn her on her side and knock off the barnacles that have collected, says Samuel. We will do the other side tomorrow. These barnacles may not look like much, but they build up and slow you down a few knots. I saved some paint to touch up Freya. They only speak about the work the rest of the afternoon. Steady, steady, his father adds. After the thirty-foot catch has been careened, Gareth stares out at the horizon. 
he thinks of telling his father he did not mean what he said. Move! Samuel shouts. A rattlesnake strikes at Gareth, but his father instinctively reaches to snatch it away. The venomous viper's rattle has fifteen buttons, indicating each time it has shed its skin. Samuel sees in a flash that the rattler only has one eye and a scar where its other should have been. The serpent's four-inch fangs drive into the elder Greyfin's wrist with the force of a ball-peen hammer. It empties its venom sacs before slithering away. Blood trickles from the wound, and Samuel's wrist swells. His face reddens and limbs grow increasingly numb by the minute. His vision begins to blur, and he sweats profusely. I'm so sorry, says the son, stricken by the gravity of what they are facing. Samuel takes off his shirt, wrapping it around his wrist. Not your fault. Let's just get this figured out, he says. I have more living I would like to do. What do we do? Well, we are too far from a hospital. We don't have much money, and frankly, I don't trust them. Remember that witch I used to tell you about? Yes, the girl who was run out of town. She lives in a cabin by the river where it forks before the swamps, near the spot where we go frog gigging. Samuel Grayfin puts his arm around his son's shoulder for support. Despite the fog of pain closing in, he realizes for the first time that his son has grown taller than him. The fork of the river is at least a twenty-minute walk, time his father may not have. Gareth talks to distract him from his pain and keep him calm as they hurry to see the witch. Why will she help us? Because I was kind to Evangeline, the old man says, panting for breath. We were friends once upon a time. Hopefully... She remembers that quickly enough to help me and to not turn you into a tree. Gareth is processing the last part of that sentence when his father stumbles on the cobblestone street. Samuel groans and collapses to the ground. Gareth cries out, Papa! Papa! His father's gray eyes roll back. Gareth picks him up and heaves him over his shoulder like a bag of grain. He wills himself not to buckle under his father's weight and quickens his pace through the sleepy streets, past the storefronts shutting down, past the cemetery with its ghosts, past the rows of Spanish moss-draped live oaks with their branches stretching out forever. As night falls like a shroud, he arrives in that swampy patch of woods at the fork of the river. Through the settling fog, he spies a faint light flickering, and a wave of relief washes over him as he sees a stilted house with haint blue shutters and a thin, steady stream of smoke puffing from its chimney. Gareth sucks in his breath and approaches hesitantly. It's impossible to tread quietly with his father's weight on his shoulders. His feet sink into the muck. His first step onto the porch creaks, announcing his arrival. He knocks on the door. Clink. An eye peers at him through a peephole. Yes? I need your help, 
You'd like to be turned into a possum? No, my... A toadstool. No, my father. Ah, something simpler. A mosquito. Samuel Grafin is dying. The peephole slams shut. Gareth lays his father on the porch and pounds heavily on the door. Please, I don't believe the things they say are true. Evangeline. The door opens wide. The witch's eyes glint with an ominous mixture of the green and black and purple. The sky turns before a tornado. Her lips and cheeks hint at a beauty behind a smile she has forgotten how to use. A patina of loneliness and years past obscures an allure that was more pronounced once upon a time. Oh, it's all true, she says in a low voice, tinged with a long, simmering rage. Even better, he says, picking up his father to carry inside the witch's home. You were friends once, yes? I don't have any friends. A raven with eyes nearly identical to the witch's, midnight black with a tinge of purple, or green, depending on the light, caws and flies onto the outcast's shoulder. Besides you, she adds, her voice softening as she gazes at the raven. That is a given. Do not be so sensitive. It is unbecoming. Gareth finds it odd that she talks to a bird. But who knows what is normal for a witch? Evangeline and the raven inspect Samuel Grayfin. The son takes the liberty of placing the small pillow from the witch's rocking chair under his father's head. The elder Grayfin lies almost motionless, slipping further into the shadows with each passing moment. Do something, please, Gareth implores. With what I currently have at my disposal, I can only slow this down, the witch says. I can give you days where ordinarily he would only have minutes. Days until he dies? He dies either way? No, there's a cure for this. A cure that can heal many things. I can make this potion. But I do not have the ingredients. The witch whispers something and waves her hand over the elder Grafin as if she is stirring the words into his being. His chest ceases to rise and fall. He lies motionless. What have you done? Gareth cries. I've given you time to gather the ingredients for the cure, says Evangeline, brushing her long, chestnut-colored hair back from her face. He is suspended between this world and the next, neither living nor dead. Not a thought, not a trouble, no pain. He is emptied out, soul hovering, awaiting his mortal fate. But do understand, you must listen carefully to what I say next, and you must act with all haste. Where can I find the ingredients? The witch 
clicks her tongue against her teeth. I need something first. A thief took a precious thing from me. The witch hands Gareth a crocus sack, large enough to fit a human inside. What's this for? There is a certain bullfrog across the river. I left him alone to live in his filth for years. But the time has come that I get back what he stole. He lives beneath an enormous oak tree of untold age. You cannot miss it. You will know it when you see it. Why are you still standing there, boy? The clock is ticking. Oh, take this. The witch says, handing Gareth a lantern full of fireflies, swirling and altogether glowing bright as any torch. And one more thing. Bring him back alive. You have no time to waste. Take my river skiff. With the man-sized crocus sack, firefly lantern, and a fair bit of desperation, Gareth paddles across the shallowest section of the river to get to the other bank. The limbs of the oaks are massive enough that they appear capable of holding the stars, which peek through the tree's branches, which appear like great candelabras. With his path lit by the lantern and a sliver of moonlight, the oak where the bullfrog makes his dwelling is as unmistakable as the witch promised. It must surely be the mother of the other trees in this forest. Its gnarled roots expose a large hole at its base. Gareth holds the lantern higher and peers in. The frog has dug himself a cave large enough for a man to live under the oak. But there's no sign of the slimy amphibian. Just a large rock, some dead bugs, and a few piles of dirt. Gareth prepares to ambush the bullfrog in his home when he returns from fattening himself up with tadpoles, salamanders, worms, and all manner of insects. Gareth leans against the rock while waiting. His back grows cold and wet. Suddenly, a pair of legs powerful as a horse's kicks Gareth clean across the burrow. The lantern smashes fireflies swirl around the room, illuminating it just long enough for Gareth to spy that behemoth bullfrog snatching them out of the dank air with his tongue. Whether through appetite or applied tactic, this confrontation will have to take place in total darkness. The bullfrog kicks Gareth again as soon as he staggers to his feet, and the youth crashes into the roots of the great oak, this time, the violent thud as he smacks the tree knocks the breath out of him. Then the frog slaps him across the face with his long tongue. He does it again and again. The seventh time his sticky tongue shoots out, Gareth catches it midair and yanks that old bully of a bullfrog closer. He knows if he lets go of that oddly slippery yet sticky tongue, he won't have the faintest clue of his foe's whereabouts, and then he will be done for. The thought of getting beat up by a frog, even one as large as this one, puts a mighty sense of urgency into Gareth's movements. 
he grips that tongue with all of his might and opens the crocosac as wide as he can with his free hand. He gives that tongue a yank, using it like a leash to force the struggling bullfrog into the sack. Well, that oversized bullfrog thrashes and kicks and ribbits a ribbit that sounds a lot like, let me go. But in this battle of wit and wills, Gareth prevails. The moon has risen and is a gracious guide tonight, providing just enough light for the lanternless young man to get back to the riverboat. He hoists the sack into the boat with his bounty spent and vanquished. The sack is remarkably heavy, so much so that the little boat nearly sinks before he reaches the witch's side of the river. Gareth is banged up and bruised, but he rolls the frog through the door into the middle of the cabin. He weighs as much as an anchor, he says. The witch whacks the bullfrog with her broom. The raven flies off the witch's shoulder, cawing at her. It sounds like she's telling the witch to stop. But a bird is just a bird after all. The witch shoots the raven a look and then resumes beating the bullfrog with her broom. You no good, philandering, conniving thief. Evangeline shouts between whacks. I gave you everything. Nothing to say to that. She whacks him again and again on his bulging belly. He ribbits as if he's trying to speak. She stops to listen. He tries to hop away, but he is too exhausted from the thrashing she has given him. So she grabs him by the leg and yanks him away from the door. She breathes out murderous threats, concluding with the ultimate terror for a frog. Hold still, Harvey, or I'll boil you alive. The raven repeatedly pecks at her shoulder as the witch pries the bullfrog's mouth open and sticks her arm down his throat. Don't like that, do you? She taunts. Should have taken your punishment like a man, but you had to play tit for tat. The witch moves her hand around in the back of his throat. Let it out, Harvey, she says, slapping his slimy back like a dog who has eaten something he wasn't supposed to. Gareth is shocked when suddenly the bulge from the bullfrog's belly shifts to his throat. He appears to be choking. The raven flaps her wings desperately and snatches at the witch's hair, urging her to do something. The witch pushes the bulge in his throat up to his mouth. She picks up her broom and whacks him hard across the upper back one last time. He coughs up a crystal ball coated in mucus which rolls across the wide plank heart-pine floor. The witch dusts herself off and regains her composure. Harvey, the bullfrog, has a name. Gareth puzzles. Harvey, the bullfrog, is splayed across the floor, belly up. The regular cycle of the ballooning and deflating of his throat, the only sign of life. The witch sighs. The raven hovers over the downed creature, 
and appears to be checking on him. "'You did what I asked,' says Evangeline, whirling to focus on Gareth. "'Therefore, I will help you.' She collects the crystal orb from the floor, carefully wipes it clean with a rag, and places it in an alligator claw that serves as a stand. She gazes at the treasure intently, the glow from the fire illuminating the glass sphere. This cure requires five ingredients. They cannot simply be found and collected. They must be meant for you. If they are not, you will fail, explains the witch, still studying the crystal ball. If you do manage to collect the ingredients, I will make this potion, and your father will return to full health, and perhaps be stronger than he was before. My raven will go with you. She knows where to find each of these items. He eyes the raven. She tilts her head and eyes him back with equal curiosity. Gareth turns to leave. One more thing, adds the witch. Take care of my raven, or your life will be in the same peril your father faces. Safe travels, young Grayfin. Spellbound Under the Spanish Moss, A Tale of Southern Magic is a book that uh, sat in 1920 coastal Georgia, and it's a tale of magical realism involving a quest. There's a near disaster in early in the book, and then there's a quest for magical ingredients that are going to bring a cure, and you're going to meet some fantastical characters along the way, and you're going to see... Um, human nature rise uh, to challenges, you know, issues that are covered in there without being didactic about it. There's an orphan in there who's taken in by somebody who loves her. And she's so loved by this woman that she's so loved by this woman that she's not scarred so much from being abandoned. She comes to see herself as, as, as strong and beautiful. And some of it is, you know, she meets a young friend in the book, you know, who's dealing with his own issues, fear and coming of age and trying to be his own man, but, you know, not quite being there. It's that awkwardness that we all feel when we're a teenager, you know, like a baby bird standing at the edge of your nest, you know, that awkwardness of where they're trying to do that. And they sort of help each other find their way over the course of the book. And I like that journey also is that they come to, they start off distrustful of each other and then they grow to become trustful and they, and to be each other's biggest fans. He becomes her mirror, you know, when she doesn't see herself and then she comes to see herself that way and vice versa, you know, he becomes strong and protective after being fearful, you know, of water and his own shadow early in the book. Yes. Through that relationship, they both evolve and that they really, they really do bring out the best in each other. A mirror is a really nice, I like that analogy of it, that they see each other's best qualities and they help reflect that in one another. Yeah. yeah. I like that. That was a great, that was a great explanation. Love it. Awesome. (laughs) I loved that. How Connor validated his dad's synopsis of the story. The next thing we talk about 
is the inspiration for a character, a girl whose differences and accepting herself makes her powerful. Turns out, this stems in part from Kevin's experience after a car accident changed him, made him feel different. The way I am is the way I'm going to be. I can't go back in a time machine. They will never fix me completely the way I was before that car wreck. So we chose to let her say the words, you know, like I'm, you know, and feel this way. The way I am is the way I ought to be. And if you're going to love me, you have to love me the way I am because I love me the way I am, you know, and that's, you know, we're all better off when we're, when we're that way and we take that stance. I totally agree. And I think there's so much power in what you just said about moving forward through things because everybody comes up against obstacles and hard times in their life and how you choose to move forward from it versus looking over your shoulder in the would have and the could have and it used to the sense of regret about things that might have been it serves no one and and you, right. you know you can never really move forward if you're constantly thinking about what might have been or what or or comparing yourself to others or saying you know well they have this easier and they you know uh, that that also never serves you right you have to no it doesn't does it. yes i remember we had these talks about failure and fear and some of your best lessons come from situations where you failed in and i think that as a parent one of the best things that we can do to instruct our kids is not stand there and as a father beat my chest and tell him all the great things that i've done but tell him about the things that went really bad and and what i learned from it and then and then how i used what i learned from that to be better because you grow up wondering and trying on different masks to go, what should I do with my life? Whatever you're going to do, make a decision and dive into it with all your might, yeah. right? And I think it's important, that, it's important that we get around people that have vision for us and that you find out what, what you're good at and then believe in the magic. You find something, you go after it hard, and you believe that something magical will happen. You know, you've got you to believe in that. I believe Kevin Garrett and Connor Judson Garrett are creating a magical world with real world metaphors. I think you'll find their quest ingredients are things we're all searching for. I'll put a link to their first book and audiobook on the Desideratum website so you can hear the rest of the story. Thanks for listening. Hi, Teresa. Bye, Connor. Bye, Padre.